Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. No preamble today. Uh, we are going to dive right in and talk to my guest about his book. His book is When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. The author is Theodore Roosevelt Johnson III. Theodore R. Johnson is a senior fellow and director of the Fellows Program at the Brennan, Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law, where he undertakes research on race, politics, and American identity. Prior to joining the Brennan Center, he was a national fellow at New America and a commander in the United States Navy, serving for 20 years in a variety of positions, including as a White House fellow in the first Obama administration and as a speechwriter to the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome Theodore Roosevelt Johnson to Politics, A Love Story. Hello, Ted. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's really my pleasure for having you here and talking about this subject, which is ever more prominent today than it's ever been. And uh, there is still so many aspects to it. And um, I just thought you ought to be here. And uh, in the beginning, uh, it, there is this quote, it'll all work out somehow, talking about racism. Oh, really? Um, I'm not so sure. So uh, let me just, I, I, I have, and we're not going to get to them all, I have nine pages of notes and quotes uh, because I read the book of the author from cover to cover, and this is to honor the work that has been put into this, and uh, I want to make sure that at least we have lots of choices about what we're going to talk about. So here's a beginning thing. We wonder aloud how a country that has arguably become more aligned to its founding principles over the last couple of centuries remains confounded by racial injustice and conflict at every turn. What do you think about that? That is the story of America. Um, I, you know, we are a nation that began with a great idea and some courageous men who made decisions that didn't reflect some of the courage they showed in other aspects of their lives. That is, they're courageous and willing to break away from the governing entity of Great Britain, but were not courageous enough to ensure that the nation they established on the principle that all men are created equal didn't enslave people upon its creation. Um, the, the, the story of our country is a story of a nation slowly but surely groaning to include people it used to exclude. And there is beauty in that progress, beauty in that journey, but it is also littered with the blood, sweat, tears, and lives of many Americans who fought to push the nation to be a better version of itself than it was at its creation. And frankly, um, this is the fight we have picked up the baton for and are engaged in today to ensure the nation we leave behind tomorrow is better than the one we picked up. Um, I I'll say that as a black man, I am much happier being black in America in 2021 than in 1921 or 1821. So this is, it is inarguable that the nation has progressed on the question of race, uh, but it is also inarguable that the nation we profess to be in our sacred texts uh, in the Declaration of, of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, we have not yet achieved that utopian state described in those documents, and maybe we never will. Our goal isn't to ensure the journey is completed, but that we take 
additional steps towards that egalitarian state and, uh, and leave the nation better off than we found it. Well, as a white man, I want to say that I still believe that this country has a deep racism embedded in its roots and in the uh, micro rhizomes that spread out from those roots. And it's going to take a lot of extra work to eliminate that. Um, you may see it positively. Uh, unfortunately, I see it negatively. And these things are ingrained in the households that we all grow up in. Um, well, and, and so I think, so in, in that, I, I want to make a distinction here. And so I think you're right that in many American households, there has been an inherited conception of racial hierarchy that too many have not done enough to combat over, you know, in, in their lifetimes. So I, I don't suggest that racism, the interpersonal kind, the, the kind that leads to prejudiced and bigoted behavior, is over with or done or solved. And, and frankly, I don't know that we, it will ever be. Um, but to your point about racism being in the DNA of the country, I agree. Um, as long as we're saying that the DNA is evidenced in the structures of our society and the way we, you know, based on the housing areas we live in, the schools our kids can go to, the jobs that we can get, the social networks that we have, all of the ways that opportunity is realized in our country, those opportunities are built on a bed of public policy that is grounded in a history where racial inequality used to be the order of the day. And so to that extent, there is, and this is why structural racism is a different animal than the interpersonal racism. And often those two things are conflated. But uh, in the book, I insist that we detach the two and talk specifically about structural racism, because that is the kind of racism that public policy can uh, help address the effects of in order to ensure that more Americans, no matter their race or ethnicity, has a better shot at realizing the full benefits and privileges of being a citizen. But because of the political structure in this country, so we had eight years of Barack Obama's administration uh, dealing with these public policy issues. And then we have four years of backsliding uh, and worse. I, I mean, there was an intentional effort to overturn and even embed people deep into those uh, uh, departments that could work against uh, the good angels. And then we have the Obama administration just getting started, trying to overcome those four years of difficulty. So it's hard, isn't it? It's extremely hard, extremely hard. This is the, the reason we exist as a nation um, is to determine whether or not it's possible to have a multiracial democracy that is also egalitarian. No, no one has ever accomplished this before. It's, it's never been done in a nation of our size with our level of diversity. So we are attempting the, the, uh, the, the thing that has not yet been done. So it's incredibly difficult. Um, to, to the point about the, the backsliding that happened, or at least certainly the dichotomy of presidencies between, you know, the differences between Obama and, and the Trump administrations, part of that is a reaction to a changing America that too many Americans are afraid of, uh, that outright reject the change, or who insist that if change comes, that they don't lose their place in the hierarchy and sort of the, the social status that has long been attached to their group. 
Uh, and so this is why solidarity across lines of race is so difficult. Um, and it's because we often have those who hold power, economic and political power, who will exploit racial tensions between groups as a way of holding on to power, because if the people are not united, it is very difficult to move the government to be responsive to the people. And so instead of government taking long strides um, over a, a sustained period of time to reduce the impacts of racism in our society, in our society hard, difficult work requires sacrifice, resources, et cetera, um, you have unprincipled leaders who would rather say, the reason America isn't working for you is because those people over there are taking your share of the pie. They don't work hard as you. They don't have the same values as you. They're cheating in the game, and they're relying on government social safety nets instead of their hard work, and they're sucking up resources that would otherwise be going to you and your family to ensure your economic stability and your sort of cultural um, comfort levels. And so by pitting us against one another, um, those with power don't have to send, surrender or sacrifice anything while the country move, moves along. And in the, the meanwhile, we are destroying our democracy. Uh, and so the book argues for a way to prevent the people from being exploited in this way and to come together across difference in order to hold government accountable. Well, you uh, refer a, a number of times to national solidarity. And that's where you're talking about across racial and ethnic lines to get the solidarity of the people to move forward in unison rather than against one another. And you also make reference to e pluribus unum, out of one, out of many, one. Uh, and that's right. what you're talking about with national solidarity. Do you think we are actually getting closer to that? I think we've had some flashpoints it, just within the last year that suggests it's within the realm of the possible. The, the question is, is the, are the versions that we have seen durable and thick enough, resilient enough, to resist the divisive appeals that will naturally follow any, any attempt or any um, small successes that the public realizes um, in, in terms of national solidarity? So when I say national solidarity, what I mean is uh, the kind of connection between people otherwise strangers to one another, democratic strangers, um, who come together over a cause of morality or justice. They don't come together because they're, they're dissatisfied with their paychecks or the cost of health insurance or the size of student loan debt, not material things. They come together because they recognize that we are fall the nation is falling short of its professed ideals, and that falling short is harming people's ability to make a living for themselves. So they come together over this cause of morality or justice, in order to hold the state accountable for being in breach of the social contract. And in America, the social contract basically says citizens will pay taxes, will serve in the military, do jury duty, follow the laws and, and, and good order of the country. And in return, the government will provide security, stability, prosperity, opportunity. But most importantly, in our constitutional democracy, government will ensure that all people's rights are protected in accordance with the Constitution and will approach that premise from the idea that we are all created equal in the first place. And so when we have a society where inequality, racial inequality in particular, runs rampant, then the government is in breach of its obligations uh, that are guaranteed in the social contract. And national solidarity is when people recognize that breach, recognize that they are all harmed by that breach, and bond together over a moral cause 
in order to insist the nation um, live up to its end of the bargain. Like the civil rights marches in the 60s that's, that's that right. included not just black people, but white people and others uh, because they saw exactly. that injustice. That's right. And even more recently, I think last summer was a flash of national solidarity. Um, after the killing of George Floyd on Memorial Day last year, uh, coupled with the public finding out about the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, who was killed in Georgia by white vigilantes, uh, the death of Breonna Taylor, who was killed in a no-knock warrant, even though she wasn't suspected of doing anything wrong. Her boyfriend was under suspicion of something, and, and, and she was killed in the crossfire. Um, or not even cross, uh, killed in the crossfire. Um, this was also a time where the coronavirus began to roil the nation, and so people were now sequestered in their homes and uncertain about public health and their own lives, and the economy began to tank as a re reaction to the coronavirus pandemic, so lots of people lost their jobs and their sense of economic stability. And so when George Floyd is murdered, that, I think, was the tipping point for a nation that was highly upset with the way government had been handling itself. And from uh, May through easily September of last summer, we saw protests happening in every state in the country, and even the territories, and, and even in some foreign nations. Uh, uh, they were called racial justice protests, but I think they were really uh, protests in national solidarity against the government that was under delivering on the promise. They were multi-generational, generational, multi-racial, across lines of race and religion and ethnicity, across regions, across political parties and ideologies, and they were sustained for the entire summer, capped off in the fall by the highest level of voter participation the nation has seen in 120 years. <laughs> and what did we see in response to this high level of national solidarity? A government bickering about uh, election results and outcomes and integrity, a January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, and now we are seeing a deliberate attempt to use our nation's history and things like critical race theory to divide the people so that we don't pay attention to government under-delivering and not working for us, and instead turn against one another after a, a really raucous 2020 year where uh, the people came together and, and insisted government do better. Well, that's the typical magician's ploy, is to yes. wave your left hand while your right hand is doing something that the people aren't going to recognize. So here's a question. I think that you asked this in your book. What is the proper balance between the powers of the state and the liberty of the people? Because even some uh, nonviolent protests developed that way because of either an overreaction of the police or uh, some uh, seditionists that were placed within the group. Yeah, this is a great question, and, um, and, and it is one that we have answered differently over the course of time. Um, in uh, the aftermath of 9-11, there was a question about people's liberty and the security of the state. Um, on September 10th, you didn't have to take off your shoes to get on an airplane. You could, your loved ones could walk you directly to the gate. And then by the time the airlines opened, the airports opened up after 9-11, a few days later, um, tons of measures put in place to include your loved ones not being able to go beyond the, the, the ticketing lobby to, um, to when you catch an airplane. We accepted that reduced liberty in exchange for a heightened sense of security. Uh, and so when we pull out from that micro example to think about uh, how this question um, uh, confronts us today, 
we have to answer um, when it comes to things like the powers of police, um, executive powers by the president or governor or mayor, um, how much power we give those entities, those offices, in exchange for the liberty that's preserved in exchange for that power. And we, we, we don't have a consensus answer on that. But here's one thing this murder showed us, that when it comes to the agents of the state exercising their duties uh, in, in law enforcement, that is to protect the public, provide peace, et cetera, when, when there is a clear violation of that, there needs to be clear accountability. And after Floyd's murder, um, there, there was doubt that accountability was coming based on our nation's history, even its recent history, uh, based on the way our country prioritizes security, almost to the exclusion of every, anything else. Um, remember, we are the same nation that, that not only allowed slavery to persist for nearly a century, but we locked up Japanese Americans mm. after World War II on the suspicion that they might be spies following Pearl Harbor. Even though we were at war with Germany and Italy, we didn't lock up German Americans or Italian Americans, only Japanese Americans. Uh, and so this goes to the, the thesis of the book around the, the unique challenge racism presents this country, even uh, as we confront other things. So the way this connects to your question about the balance of power or the balance of security and liberty, racism is often the thing that is uh, weaponized to move the state to value security over individual liberties. And yet, those who are making the appeals to uh, increase state liberty, your state security, state power, are often making those appeals saying the only way you will have more individual liberty is if you let the state exercise more security. And the resulting question is, who gets more scrutiny and who gets more liberty? And it is not a blanket statement to say that everyone gets more liberty when the state gets more security. It, it, what has happened, what our history shows, is that when the state increases its level of security or its exercise of the security um, activities, mechanisms, it is enforced on those groups that are valued less in the society, which often trace racial lines, and those who are promised more liberty in return also trace racial lines. And as such, the question about security and liberty in the United States is often a question about racial hierarchy in the United States. And this is why uh, I present the idea that it is structural racism that is the existential threat to the American idea because of the way it is mobilized in order to uh, provide the state cover for not doing its, its actual job, which is ensuring all of us across lines of race and ethnicity get to enjoy the, the benefits of American citizenship. And this next sentence I'm going to read uh, from your book, uh, I think describes pretty much what we were just talking about. Just because the nation may no longer wear racial discrimination on its sleeve does not mean racism no longer pollutes our bloodstream. Mm. Pretty deep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is the part about structures. Um, th th this is, and, and that's what I meant by bloodstream, uh, that the way our society is structured, the way we're built, it was built off a set of policies, off a democratic culture that, was, that, that is grounded in the exclusion of people, um, not just enslaved black people, uh, not just Native Americans, but immigrants from Southeast Asia, white immigrants from places like Ireland and Italy and Poland. And the journey of the country is one that has, uh, again, slowly moved towards more inclusion of the groups that used to exclude. I mean, even women couldn't vote until 100 years ago. We're approaching our 250th uh, birthday here in a few years. So the, and so the result of all of that is that we, we created a nation 
um, from which policy emanated that was grounded in, in times in a history that excluded the vast majority of people that make up the country today. And so this is what we mean when we say our society, when we say structural racism, it is that these inequalities, these disparities, these historic discriminations are uh, built into the structures of the country. They, they are coursing through our bloodstream. So even if in our mind we don't hate, even if in our heart we don't hate, the blood pumping through this organism, this national organism, is blood that owes its existence to um, to, to, to a founding that excluded many people. And so we can't help but perpetuate those uh, inequalities unless we take a proactive stance of cleansing the blood, uh, of using public policy to reform our structures such that those who are left behind in the status quo can enjoy the, the benefits of their citizenship and their sacrifices for the country just like everyone else. And this is shown very clearly uh, in housing policy. Uh, because the wealth inequality is so much greater for families of color than for whites, and that basically starts with housing. Uh, The redlining that uh, did not allow uh, people of color to get mortgages or uh, that they wouldn't uh, insure areas that were mixed. Uh, And I was a recipient of that aspect when I wanted my wife and I wanted to buy our first house, it was in a mixed community. We felt that we wanted a real world experience for our children, not a lily white existence that isn't real. And when I just went to my bank, I had a business then and asked them, just give me an idea, you know, would we qualify for a mortgage? And the banker looked at the address, looked it up on his computer and said, hmm, no. And I said, why not? He said, well, it's a risky neighborhood you're planning to move to. Now, is that written down anywhere? Is there anything? I mean, this is part of the structural racism that you were talking about. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and you know, in, in many of those redlining things, there, there were communities built that had racial covenants in the community guidelines that, that never mind what the federal government said or the bank said about mortgaging, but in the community covenants, it said in order to preserve our housing value, this has to remain an all-white community. And so no people of color were allowed to buy there. So, and so this is what I mean. And so today, if a white family similarly situated to my family wants to buy a house, it is, there is a higher likelihood that uh, that family will have benefited from their parents' and grandparents' ability to accumulate wealth over time based on their uh, federally backed mortgages because of military service or other sort of federal housing programs that allowed them to accumulate wealth based on on buying. And especially if they're a military veteran or their great-grandfather, grandfather served, they probably got a college education for next to nothing, which allowed them to get professional white-collar jobs, which increased income. And, you know, that compounded with time, with home ownership, uh, and then the other financial aspects, 401Ks, pension plans, et cetera, suddenly, though that white person today has done nothing racist in buying a home, and though my, uh, you know, my family having followed all the guidelines of going to school and doing well and working hard and saving money, um, when we go to buy homes, they are, they are better situated to buy homes in a nicer neighborhood than I am for no other reason than the advantages that their family enjoyed because of their race that my family was intentionally excluded from because of race. And so while none of us today will ever practice slavery or Jim Crow, we are benefits of a structure, a societal structure, 
that did. And the impacts of that structure of those discriminatory, discriminatory policies um, still resonate today in ways that create the large wealth gap we see. And so when people look at today's housing market and segregated neighborhoods and the wealth gap and say, America, this is proof that structural racism is a problem in America, uh, and white families um, are, are told, when people say that, they're telling you that you're racist, that you cheated, that you didn't work hard. When people say white privilege, they're saying you didn't earn what you have, and that is not the America of Martin Luther King's, I have a, you know, uh, I have a dream. where we're judged by the color of our skin. And that, of course, is an oversimplification of the issue to the point of being inaccurate, but it is politically expedient. And it allows, again, government to shirk its responsibility to be responsive to the actual demands of the two different groups of people at, at, in question here. That white family who's getting a raw, a raw if America's promise works in it to everyone, and that black family who is really getting short-circuited in, in the promise and passing on that disadvantage to their children, just as the white family is passing on uh, the advantage they realize to theirs. Well, I think that in the overall conversation, you're slightly more optimistic than I am. But I also want to point out a person that you mentioned in your book, uh, Hope Copeland, a black woman from the Deep South who is also a Muslim, a chemist, and a special agent in the FBI. So, yes, there is movement individually, if not as a group. Uh, the group hierarchy is still not up to where it could be or it should be, but there is hope, and, and you're expressing that, and uh, I think you're right, and I think maybe I'm just too pessimistic overall because of what I see and the things that I hear, not necessarily in the locker room because uh, there has been no locker room the last year and a half, but, <laughs> right. but the point is there are things that people say in private within their own group that they wouldn't necessarily say publicly. Yeah, and so so the story of hope is it's an amazing one, and you you captured the highlight there. Um, and as I write in the book, she if if you had told the framers of the Constitution, the founders of this country, that someone like Hope Copeland would be at the forefront uh, as an agent of the state and defender of the nation, they could not have conceived of her, not just because of her gender or her race or her religion, or her education, you know, but that all those things were combined into a person who is now a defender of the realm, so to speak, uh, because she focuses on chemical, biological, and nuclear uh, threats to the United States that are occurring overseas or are folks trying to move those materials into the country. And so she, she is a, a, an American knight, uh, for example. <laughs> she, she, she is, and, and they could not have imagine such a thing as Hope Copeland. It could exist in this country, and yet they laid the groundwork for a woman like her to emerge, but only after lots of sacrifice, lots of time, and, uh, and, and lots of unnecessary loss of life as a result. Um, the other thing I'll say is I am optimistic about the American Project. I am The book is an aspirational one, but, but I, I am only optimistic in that I see a path forward that can help us be better. Uh, and I'm only aspirational in that uh, our march from history, from our founding to today, is in the right direction, even though there have been some very major setbacks over the course of our, our, our history, but that the trend line suggests um, that we'll continue moving in this direction, and as long as there's a world around us to continue living in, that the United States can continue pushing in that direction. Now, I might be wrong, and, and this whole 
experiment may collapse on itself because we're trying to do something that's never been done, and perhaps maybe uh, humankind in its current uh, um, version can't accomplish it. Maybe we fail. Um, it, it also relies a lot on people. And I don't know if we're up to the task of creating this multiracial, egalitarian, constitutional, liberal democracy. We, we may have the same vision of it or say we want the same thing, but are we willing to do the work to make it real? And that I don't know. If I were to focus on the people part of this, um, I would be less hopeful. Uh, but I'm focusing more on the, um, the sort of destiny aspect of this, um, the same thing that made enslaved black people get up every morning. Um, it, with the hope that maybe their children wouldn't live the lives they did, uh, the same thing that made white immigrants uh, give up everything and, and, and or, or leave nothing in order to and, and arrive to nothing in, or, in hopes of realizing uh, a better version of life for themselves and their children. And so it's that faith that I, I ground my entire argument in, the faith that has undergirded many generations and many peoples. Uh, but nothing about this thing is inevitable. And, uh, and we will see whether or not we're up to the task in, in the near future. Hey, let me take this opportunity to reintroduce you. You're listening to Politics, A Love Story. Uh, our guest today is Theodore Roosevelt Johnson III, author of the book, When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. Well, my problem is, the reason for my pessimism is that I read too much. Uh, aside from reading the, the actual newspapers of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, I'm online with maybe 25 or 30 other websites, and all I see is gloom and doom, all things that are not right, that should have never happened, and just a, a small personal point. I lost four bets. I bet friends of mine, we have breakfast every Thursday, that... Uh, the previous guy in the White House would resign and allow his vice president to take over to be able to pardon him because that's the normal way that things would have gone. Who would have thought that he was that depraved, that he is that deranged, aside from his ineptitude, that he would think he could reverse things? Uh, one of my uh, guests is uh, in the past has been Rick Hansen. He's at the University mm -hmm. of California, Irvine. And I asked him the question, so if it was found out uh, that Trump had colluded with Russia to get his position, could he be thrown out? He said once uh, the, uh, uh, the Electoral College has voted and it's been accepted by Congress, the only way to get rid of him is to impeach him. So for him to think because of I guess how he thinks, which is certainly alien to me, that he could just go in and reverse things that he could then take over. And so what was the point of resigning and leaving Pence as the guy in charge when he could just reverse everything? Mm. Who'd have thunk? <sighs> uh, certainly yeah. our founders never thought of somebody doing that, or maybe if they did, they had these other things in place. But I was so far wrong that th mm -hmm. this person could be that bad. Uh, yeah, yeah, and so founders, they tried to guard against uh, those impulses and, and future leaders. Uh, that was the reason for checks and balances among the branches. Uh, it was the reason for, uh, for um, uh, restricting you know, certain offices um, so that 
demagogues couldn't sort of arrive and then take over the country. And, it, and it's, the, it's the reason why they built in uh, a lot of mechanisms so that the country couldn't turn on a dime. Uh, you know, it takes a lot of time for, for, a country, for the country to, to sort of change its ways. And it, that, that slow responding nature of, of the country was built into the way it, it was constructed so that uh, those um, personalities, those cult of personalities couldn't immediately turn the, the, the country on a 90-degree angle in a different direction. Um, and, and even in the Federalist Papers, they, they talk about, um, you know, these unprincipled figures. But they figured the way we built our government, we can pretty much keep those folks in check. And then the people will have a chance to get them out of office. And if it takes too long or if, or if uh, you know, we can't wait for the next election, then we've got the impeachment mechanism in place to, to do this. All of this presumes, and even the founders did, uh, and, and at least in their language, even if not in their actual minds, they presumed that everyone within government would act in a principled way. And so when you had an unprincipled actor arrive, those men of principle, uh, certainly only men at the time, would see this unethical, immoral, unprincipled behavior and remove that person so that they wouldn't corrupt government. But in Federalist Paper 10, um, Madison warns about the threat of factions in our country, and that factionalism was the thing that might undo the whole thing. And uh, he was mostly worried about those who owned property and those who didn't, but today's factions are the political parties. And we are, we are watching what happens when faction becomes more important than democracy. And so uh, lots of Republicans who are, who are sticklers about the rule of law and original meaning of the Constitution and uh, you know, checking the powers of the state surrendered all of those art talking points in order to ensure their guy and their party um, could remain in power or at least – uh, if once leaving power, they could blame uh, immoral and undemocratic behavior on the other guys and sort of absolve themselves of, of, uh, of being uh, culpable or, or complicit in the, the outcome of the election. A well-functioning democracy can't work that way. And the only reason, and then this sort of wraps into the book's argument about national solidarity, the only reason that was effective is because our former president was able to convince the people in his party that if they didn't fully support him to, to the point of undermining an election, that they would lose electoral support in their states and their congressional districts and eventually be voted out of office. And so the people, the public, um, fell victim to this narrative. And uh, we saw it in the last election, which is extremely close. Uh, basically, though it was 7 million you know, distance in the popular vote, it's basically decided by about 40,000 votes across three states. Extremely close. And so uh, the public, we allowed ourselves to be commandeered by the, the lies told about our election. And then our elected officials were responsive to our being duped, certainly on, on one side of the aisle, and then began to perpetuate the anti-democratic behavior because they feared for their loss of political power if they, they didn't toe the party line. That is a function of unprincipled actors, certainly, and inefficient, inefficient government, certainly, but mostly it originates in the fact that we, the people, the public, had turned against one another, and, were, and, and one side was willing to throw out the voice of the public just so that their faction would win. And that is a, one of the things that national solidarity in its true form would temper, such that the elected officials would be incentivized, compelled to be responsive to a united public instead of incentivized and compelled to be more divisive in order to hold on to their portion of the public. So you point out about uh, trickle-down citizenship, and you 
say it is a reminder that the extension of rights to previously excluded groups is a matter of cold political calculus, not of warm, fuzzy feelings about our exceptionalism. Yes, that is, that is, that's right. Um, and, and that is um, for a few reasons that I'll try to do, go through very quickly, maybe just two big ones. The first is that the United States is a nation state. It is a geopolitical entity. It is, a, it, you know, one of the products of this Westphalian nature of, of international relations where we don't have kingdoms and empires. We have states with boundaries, uh, with ge- certain geographies, and a, a public, a, a citizenry that lives within those boundaries. And so in that construct, states aren't moral entities. They are governed by their interests. The things that used to be good for the United States and its depiction and its conception once they no longer became good for them, suddenly became bad and evil. And so th- that wasn't because the moral compass changed. It was because there was no moral compass in the first place. There was only the interest. And so there's no absolute, absolute sense of good or bad or right or wrong. It is this thing is in the interest to pursue, and then until it's not, and, and in which case now we will do something different that it's in its interest, even if it's 180 degrees out from what we were doing before. So that, that's part of it. The second is... Um, if we look at the decisions that the nation has made, building off this first point, the nation decided, uh, the, the framers, the founders of the Constitution decided that at the nation's inception, it was more important for it to be united in union than for it to abolish slavery, because the issue of slavery would have prevented the union from taking shape. So they felt it was more important to create the union and do the immoral thing of continuing to enslave people. And then when the Civil War comes around nine decades later, it wasn't because there were a bunch of moral epiphanies happening across the country about the humanity and dignity of black people. It was because, uh, and Lincoln says this very plainly, what I do today, I do to save the Union and not about slavery. And so slavery was a byproduct of Lincoln trying to reunite the country. And in his estimation, uh, the, the only way that only remaining avenue open to keep the country unified was to abolish slavery. He toyed with the idea of sending black people to the Caribbean or, or back to Africa. And only after finding that this was impossible did he decide to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Similarly, and this is sort of where I'll wrap the point up here, in the civil rights movement um, that, that allowed us to see the Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 65, et cetera, that didn't happen because of a wash of moral epiphanies happening across white America about the, the treatment of black people. It happened because after World War II, we were in an international struggle with the Soviet Union for uh, domination in the world, for, for influence across the country or around the world. We were telling people that we were the democracy, home of the free, land of the brave. Uh, you know, th- th- this was the place where democracy um, was the true, better style of government as opposed to communism. And we would say that the Soviets w- would say, but you lynch Negroes because this is the time of Jim Crow, mm. and black people were, even black veterans were being lynched. And so um, we were now harmed in our influence uh, struggle in the Cold War around the world by being hypocritical about our values, uh, as evidenced by the way the country treated black people. So between 1948, when Truman desegregates the military by executive order, to 1968, when the Fair Housing Act was passed, and Brown v. Board in between, so two Civil Rights Act in between, a Voting Rights Act in between, Eisenhower deploying the 101st Airborne to desegregate Little Rock, Arkansas, happens in this time frame. Uh, Tremendous racial progress during the civil rights movement because it was in the national interest to do so 
as a rebuttal to the Soviet Union's um, uh, exposing of the hypocrisy between who we were and who we said we were. So that all of the racial progress we've seen across the nation's history is a byproduct of, a, of the national interest. And all of the, the backsliding we've seen has also been because the nation has either been disinterested or directly found it in its interest to allow it to happen. As such, the next steps we take towards racial progress, racial equality, will require we marry the moral claim on equality with the national interest and whatever that national interest may be and in the time we're making the argument. There is so much good stuff in your book. I just want to commend you for that and to tell people who are listening that this book you ought to read, whether you get it out of the library or you buy it. It is definitely something worthwhile reading. And one of the lines from there is, this is the lie that racism tells us, that it is a moral failing, to be driven from the souls of individuals, not a systemic flaw that takes proactive public policy to dismantle. Mm. Yes, that's just what you were talking about. Uh, that's why Eisenhower, uh, Kennedy, Johnson wanted to get those laws passed because it took the government to do it. It wasn't a personal uh, failure. Right. That's exactly right. And, and Johnson says this very plainly when he addresses the joint uh, session of Congress before voting on the Voting Rights Act of 65 happens. And he says, look, this is not a Southern problem. This is not a Negro problem. This is an American problem. And either we live up to our, our values, the promise of America, or we uh, have to admit that it's all superficial rhetoric and we are more interested in, uh, in defying the very words in our founding documents. And that was a powerful pull, but it was in service of legislation, not in service of converting people's hearts to be more accepting of people who look differently than them. Just four years after uh, Johnson is elected president, uh, three years after the Voting Rights Act, right, Rights Act is passed, and the same year that the Fair Housing Act is passed and Martin Luther King is assassinated, we have a candidate for the presidency running on a third-party ticket um, on the platform of racial segregation who wins four or five southern states in their electoral college votes? The last time an independent candidate or, or uh, an independent candidate or a third party candidate, aside from the major two parties, won any electoral college votes in the history or in, in the last uh, in the United States. And you know, uh, so this is the last time it happened. This is in 1968 with George Wallace. So the, the 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 hearts and minds were not moved by 1968 for him to capture the entire South, and yet black folks voted in that election at high rates for the first time since Reconstruction because of the law passed just three years prior. And so that shows how we can move public policy and we can alter the, the structures of our society and still not rid the, uh, the desire for racial inequality or blatant explicit racial hatred out of the hearts of people and create a better country even when that racial hatred still exists. And over time, uh, because of public policy, the norm becomes tolerance and acceptance and inclusion, and certainly um, uh, the, the norm becomes an, a, a, the ostracization of any who would ex express explicit racist uh, hatred and, and, uh, or, or preferences for discrimination. And now it's just moved um, to basically not correcting structures that have racist outcomes and, uh, and, and 
having a different conversation about those structures and uh, tying those to people's hearts instead of having the policy discussion about the structures themselves, which I think is the the more productive one that creates the country we want. And uh, reading more of your words uh, to this point, Studies show that when people of color discuss racism, they are usually referring to systemic or institutional practices that complicate every aspect of American life for them. But when white Americans hear the term racism, they usually associate it with, associated it with a racism of the heart in the form of interpersonal prejudices. That is, one group tends to see racism as a set of barriers to equal treatment and opportunity, and the other group views it as the explicit things that people say and do. Right, right. And because of that mismatch, whenever we start talking about structural racism, systemic racism, institutional racism, anti-racism, critical race theory, one side is hearing a conversation that, is, that, that should be following about public policy and about the way our society is built. The, uh, another side is hearing... Um, that America is racist and irredeemably so, and white people are responsible for that racism, and that the privilege that results from their actions is intentional and, uh, and born out of a, a feeling of the heart and not just uh, you know, the happenstance from historic public policy or historical policy. And, if, and so when you have that mismatch, everything that happens after that is unproductive because we're not talking about the same things. And when, uh, when one side tries to point out how they're not racist, the other side points to the wealth gap. And when, when the, the one side points to um, all the increased opportunity that exists in the country, you know, given our, our history and certainly relative to 100, 200 years ago, the other side points out all of the, the disparities that still exist. And now we don't agree on the definitions. We don't agree on the causes, which means we don't agree on who is responsible, who has been victimized, and what should be done next. And now we are throwing darts at one another, and government sort of skips off. Uh, and, and this isn't to, to, to suggest that government is evil and act actively looking to, to, um, to, to turn people against one another. It, it, it suggests that the way our society is structured, the way our politics work, that there is a reward for those who can divide the people and win office. And there is little reward for those who try to unite the people and bring a unitive rhetoric to our politics and try to move the country forward. Barack Obama in 2004 talked about there's no red or blue America, only United States America. Certainly he won uh, the presidency and was reelected. But the backlash to his election landed us in, um, you know, basically delivered uh, a, a reactionary Trump presidency and a, uh, a Capitol Six insurre- a January 6th insurrection at the Capitol that was largely based on a racial grievance of one uh, segment of Americans who feel like they're being cheated out of the, the promise of America by, by people of color, essentially, um, who, who haven't earned their, their place in America in their view. So this is how it works. You know, we are, we are uh, instead of talking about the hard issues of changing and reforming our policies and institutions and systems, um, we have leaders, too many leaders, who try to make racism only about the matter of the heart and then suggest that government, the place for government is not in matters of the heart, but in, but in, um, you know, in policy. And this is the, uh, as I say early in the book, this is the sleight of hand that, the, that racism pulls on all of us to, to the detriment of all of us.
So I want to take a, a short uh, distance from politics for a moment because I have this important question here. What is a White House fellowship? Great question. And frankly, this was a, a life-changing experience for me. The White House Fellowship was established uh, by Lyndon Johnson, uh, one of his staffers, John Gardner, but under the Johnson presidency, to be a one-year fellowship that would bring 11 to 19 Americans from all across the country and expose them to the inner workings of Washington so that they could understand how the White House works, how the cabinet-level secretaries uh, and, and departments work, how policy is made interacts with media, with uh, the private sector, with the public, and then send them back to their communities with this deeper understanding of American government so that the things they care about, uh, whatever industry they come from, education, healthcare, um, energy, whatever it may be, take the lessons of policymaking back to their communities and improve uh, with the understanding of how it works. And it's persisted. Um, for more than five decades now. Uh, so I was a fellow in 2011, 2012, and um, shortly, uh, maybe a decade or so after the fellowship was started, uh, they allowed military officers. No federal employees are allowed to be White House fellows unless you're a military officer. So as an active duty Navy uh, commander, I was a White House fellow and got the exposure to the inner workings of Washington that really changed my trajectory. It's one of, considered one of the most prestigious public service fellowships uh, in the country, uh, meant for mid-career professionals, and uh, I would highly recommend it to any who are concerned about their country and are looking to, uh, to learn a little bit more about how to help us be better. So how did you get there? Did you apply for it? Were you recommended for it? Uh... Right. So, in, um, so the, the, I was in the Navy at the time, and the Navy sends a message out that says all officers interested in this program um, it's available, and you should apply for it and notify your chain of command, et cetera. So you apply. You apply um, through five short essays, a resume, and three letters of recommendation. And about anywhere between 500 to 1,000 applications come in every year. About 120, 130 finalists are chosen from the, uh, the received applications and chosen by former White House fellows who do the initial screening. After that, there are regional interviews from which 30 finalists are chosen who are then brought to Washington, D.C. and interviewed by a commission of about 25 people chosen by the president. And then uh, about 11 to 19 uh, of those 30 finalists are selected for the class each year, which uh, begins in September and wraps in August of the following year. Wow. Uh, that's really a, a, a tough process to go through. And obviously Indeed. they want the best people possible, and you are one of them. I appreciate it. I was quite fortunate. And, uh, and the last thing I'll say on this is, and, and this really ties back into the book, stellar people apply to the White House Fellowship from the best schools, from, you know, the, whether private or, or state schools, very smart, very accomplished in their professions, uh, even though they're just mid-career, not executives. But because of that, um, you have to find a way to sort of stand out and tell a story about yourself, your passions, and your beliefs that will resonate with those who are making this, who are in control of the selection process. And this is where I sort of uh, told the commissioners the story of my name, Theodore Roosevelt Johnson III, you know, a, a black man from North Carolina named after a rich, white New Yorker Republican from a century, <laughs> over a century ago, and, uh, and how the name comes about because of my, my great-grandparents naming my grandfather that, and that name being passed down to me as a sort of claim on the American promise, despite uh, their lives as sharecroppers in Jim Crow, South Carolina. 
I would like to take the last um, six or so minutes to discuss, uh, you had some solutions to how we could better things for all of us. And I wanted to delve into that a little bit. Um, one of the things you had talked about uh, is democracy reform. Uh, Americans are not happy with our government, and for good reason. It is far more responsive to the economic elites and organized business interests that wield far more influence on government policy than the average citizen does. So how would that work? Yeah, this is, and this, um, that fact comes from a study done by uh, a couple of uh, Harvard professors uh, maybe four or five years ago now. Actually, maybe it's about seven. But what they found was that government was 15 times more responsive in policy outcomes to those uh, economic elites and organized business interests than to the average American citizen. That's not how government's supposed to work. In, in our declaration, it says that government derives its power from the consent of the governed. That's us, the people. And, uh, and that study shows that's not what we have today. What democracy does, democracy reform does, is a few things. Uh, the first thing it does, it, it makes it easier to vote so that our voting, our system of voting is more in, uh, participatory and more inclusive. The second thing it does is it makes it harder to cheat by getting rid of gerrymandering or at least complicating the, the ability to gerrymander districts uh, by quite a bit. And so in this way, people who hold power can't entrench themselves in power by drawing districts that allow them to receive, like in Wisconsin, 45% of the popular vote in the state, and yet receive 55% of the seats in the state assembly. That's, that's a function of gerrymandering. That is the actual uh, um, case in the state of Wisconsin now. The, the third thing it does is it, is it makes it much more difficult for those with lots of money, corporations, economic elites, to use that money to influence the outcomes of elections through super PACs, through advertising, through, uh, you know, dark money donations to, to candidates and, and all these other things. And so it basically takes moneyed interest thumb off the scale of uh, electoral fairness and integrity. And so democracy reform and, and a lot of these measures are in the current bill before the Senate in the For the People Act, which, though it may not be perfect, it certainly addresses some of our our shortcomings and, and imperfections in our systems of, of elections and our election systems, that's a kind of democracy reform that strengthens institutions and processes in order to ensure the voice of the people determines the outcome of elections and not the voice of those who are well-resourced. Well, and that brings us to Citizens United, where uh, the determination was that money is speech. So if I have a dollar right. fifty. And Sheldon Adelson, who until he died, was given $200 million a year to the Republican Party, he gets to say a hell of a lot more than I do for my buck fifty. That's right. That's right. And so now speech is, is uh, disproportionately weighted to those who have money. And I don't think that's what the First Amendment was meant to do. And in fact, the First Amendment was meant to protect the rights of those who weren't propertyed, who weren't moneyed. To, to still be able to speak their mind and have their fair, fair say in the public sphere. And, and, and now the way our public sphere is constructed is such that it requires money to reach uh, ear, earlobes, <laughs> and, and those without it uh, get, get less of an audience. Uh, and there's another uh, proposal that you had, and I had been thinking about this for many years but haven't figured out how uh, to get it uh, anywhere that, to be heard. Uh, and that's a program of national service. Uh, you point out that three sociolo sociologi 
sociologists found that in societies where people contribute to the common good without expectation of direct reward or compensation for their contribution, they build communal solidarity characterized by trust, positive feelings, right. social unity, and feelings of commitment. Uh, yes. Absolutely. And, and, and I will be honest that this is an outcropping of my military service. I spent 20 years, uh, just over 20 years in the Navy. And so national service, the idea of that or the benefits of that are, are, are uh, an outcropping of, of my service. And then the idea here is that we, we don't know each other, as I was mentioning earlier, because our social circles are so segregated. What national service does is it forces us to get to know Americans we wouldn't otherwise encounter. And it requires us to work on something together to improve the country together. And the exposure plus that superordinate project allows us to break down walls of division um, and be more resilient to divisive appeals. Now, the hard question is whether you mandate it like some countries do or you incentivize it, which could replicate some economic inequalities or, or cause folks who are already doing well not to be interested in, in national service because they don't need the incentive. But I think a national service program is, is uh, incredibly necessary for us to realize the solidarity that's, that's, that we need. And the last point I'll say on this, um, to that point about the sociologist, if you buy your buddy a beer and the next time he buys you a beer at the bar, you've established a friendship there. But what they're saying is if you buy a stranger a beer and, and instead of saying, you know, buy me one in return, you say, just pass it on. It's like the stories we hear of people paying for the person behind them in the drive through paying for their Starbucks order or their fast food order, and then it just keeps going. That kind of activity builds solidarity because you don't know who's going to benefit from your uh, generosity, and you don't know when you benefit who's responsible for the generosity that you've just benefited from. And as such, everyone you encounter could either be a beneficiary of your charity or, you, or the, the reason for the charity that you have received, and it is that experience that builds connection. Uh, only one other thing I wanted to say about this, Ted, is that I believe that everyone should be included and it should be mandatory, and you have rich, poor, uh, physically or uh, emotionally damaged people. Everyone should participate so they feel better about themselves and about the country, as you pointed out. And yeah. I'm sorry that we have run out of time. And, mm. and the, uh, the guest today has been Theodore Roosevelt Johnson III, author of When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. I wish we had another hour because I have lots of other quotes and <laughs> questions uh, for you. But unfortunately, we've run out of time. I want to thank you very much for being here. This has been an absolute pleasure for me. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Good. Bye-bye. This has been Politics, A Love Story on KZYX. I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. Politics, A Love Story airs every first and third Friday at 9 a.m., alternating with Byline Mendocino. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Woolitz and Ukiah, 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.